0: Hello and welcome to the Respiratory Inspirations podcast. I'm Ryan Dwight chairman of the Respiratory Institute at the Cleveland Clinic. This podcast series of short, digestible episodes is intended for patients and families and covers topics related to respiratory health and disease. My colleagues and I will be interviewing experts about timely and timeless topics in the areas of pulmonary, critical illness, sleep, infectious disease, and related disciplines. We will share with you information that will help you take better care of yourself and your loved ones. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Respiratory Inspirations podcast. I'm your guest host, Eduardo Mireles Cabo de Vila. I currently serve as the director of the Medical Intensive Care Unit at the Cleveland Clinic main campus. My guests today are Dr. Deborah Rates and Dr. Philip Housie. Dr. Rates is a critical care and emergency medicine specialist. She serves as the Director of the Intensive Care Unit at the Cleveland Clinic Hillcrest Hospital. Dr. Philippe Housey is a Pulmonary and Critical Care Specialist who serves as the Director of the Pulmonary Function Laboratory for the Department of Pulmonary and Critical Care of the Integrated Hospital Care Institute at the Cleveland Clinic. Today, we'll be talking about opiates and respiratory toxicity. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome, Deb. Welcome, Philippe.
1: Thank you.
2: Thank you.
0: I would like to start by a simple question. Can you explain in simple terms how opiates can affect our breathing and our lungs? Deb, do you want to start?
1: Sure. The drive to breathe comes from your brain. And when someone uses opiates, it suppresses that drive to breathe, slowing down the rate. And then it can also decrease how much of a breath you're taking in
0: very good so F- philip that's great you you're you're a specialist on how we control the breathing and you have explained to us in the past a lot about there's receptors in the brain for the respiratory center as well as for pain and for, as well as awareness can you ta- explain a little bit just in general terms how that affects how the opiates affect those because many people are taking opiates and they perhaps say well i'm breathing normally so Explain us a little bit about that, and then I have a couple of follow-up questions.
2: So, opioids, when they diffuse to the blood, goes in the brain, and every tissue, they, this, this drug diffuse, diffuses very well everywhere, including in the, in the brain. And when they interact with a cell, a neuron in the brain, that has a specific type of receptor that can, uh, the, the drug recognizes, the molecule recognizes, the opioid recognizes, then it will combine with it, and the cell stop working. Most, most of the time how it works. So not every cell in your brain responds to that. The cells that are contrary breathing are exquisitely sensitive, very sensitive to this interaction because they possess these receptors at the surface of the cell and therefore they will stop breathing. Opioids also create other problems that are related to respiration when they use it acutely. For example, they produce an effect called muscle rigidity. And the muscle rigidity gives some difficulty to breathe to a lot of people who are using acutely fentanyl, for example. And although their breathing is not depressed completely, they cannot do normal movement because the muscle controlling respiration are becoming very rigid. It's like a cramp, a contracture of the respiratory muscle, sometimes associated with contractures of other muscles. And this effect, which is mostly or exclusively seen, during acute injection, contribute to the respiratory toxicity, acute respiratory toxicity of, of opioids. So what I'm hearing is that it affects the respiratory center, so
0: the center that controls our breathing automatically, because we're usually not thinking about breathing, right? It's, uh, so it affects that center. And then it can also cause rigidity of the chest while making it harder for you, for you to breathe. Now, many people take opioids, and you're saying, well, this only happens when you take rapidly, for example, in an inje- injection. What, what about if they're taking the pill long term and they're, they're, they were prescribed this medication? Is there also some effects at the respiratory center?
2: Yes. In everyone actually taking chronically opioid, sleep will be affected. Mm. And breathing during sleep. People are familiar with sleep apnea. Uh, they may know uh, uh, members of the family who are using CPAP or BiPAP, this machine at night. And what opioids can do when they are used chronically is to produce similar effect, affecting the quality of the sleep, but also the way we breathe at sleep, mimicking a little bit what sleep apnea are producing, sometimes requiring a treatment. So even chronically, it's not, it's not a benign thing to take opioid, your sleep will be affected. In addition, in certain patients who have chronic respiratory problem or simply are overweight, they will be more sensitive than the rest of the population to the effect of opioid. And it's very common for people who weigh even, you know, twenty pounds, they are twenty pounds higher where they should be, to experience more toxicity in their respiration, not during during sleep, but sometimes even when awake. Wow. So so
0: th- this is this is very important because what what we're saying is that then when if you're taking this pill and you have certain conditions, or even if you don't have them, you can push them into an state in which they're not breathing as well at night. So during the day, they may not feel anything, but at night, they, the sleeping may be distorted, and it may not be as good as it was, right? That's correct. That's correct. So, Deb, for our audience, what, what are the symptoms and signs that either somebody can experience or that somebody around them can see that are occurring, that you can say, ooh, this is probably the effect of an opiate. What would you tell our audience?
1: So I think there's two big things that you might see in that outpatient setting. One is an altered level of consciousness or unconscious state. And then the depressed breathing that we've been talking about. Oftentimes those two symptoms go hand in hand So you may approach a person, they're unconscious, and then you start to look at their breathing, and maybe it's very slow, or maybe you see that their chest really isn't moving a whole lot, or maybe they're really not breathing at all, and that's a clear sign that they've overdosed on an opioid.
0: And uh, evidently, the recommendation I presume here is when you detect one of these features, what what, what should they do?
1: I think it's important to get EMS there as soon as possible, so dialing 911 and telling them the concerns that you have that there's a potential overdose. There is naloxone kits out there in the community, and if there's a kit available, be familiar with it and and use it, because it can be life-saving.
0: Okay. Is there, is there any risk that they give naloxone to somebody that it's not actually overdose that it was, uh, for any other reason, lost consciousness? Would you would you be concerned about that, or they should go and act on it because if it's opiates, that, that may be life-saving?
1: I would recommend acting on it, yes. Yeah. And the likelihood of you causing harm is incredibly low.
0: So now opiates go out often in, in prescriptions to our patients. They go home with those. I would like to hear a little bit more about the, the risk. What, what common substances, for example, alcohol or other medications, should we not be combining with, for, for our patients? I mean, we're going to go into Thanksgiving and Christmas. All the, the, the parties are coming. Any recommendations that we need to give to our, our team?
2: Yes, one should avoid any other medications that can affect the level of vigilance what I mean by that is a sleeping pill. Mm-hmm. People who are treated for depression, for example, people who are taking medication to reduce anxiety, all these medications can increase the toxicity of opioid. Mm. So they have to be well aware of that. Mention to the physician that are taking these pills, be aware that taking an opioid, even chronically at relatively low dose can be potentially toxic. So alcohol could be a, certainly an issue and increase the risk of sleep apnea at night when combined to opioids. That's certainly the major, a major problem that the patient must be aware of and sometimes mention to his doctors. And if there's any question, don't hesitate. Is this drugs compatible? Is this medication compatible with the treatment you are giving me, the new treatment, to avoid any uh, unnecessary problems? That's wonderful. So, so avoid alcohol when you're
0: taking opiates and ensure that your interactions with the physicians or, or the, the caregiver that is providing you other the, the opiates to be sure that there's no interactions. Deb, thoughts?
1: Yes, to echo what Dr. Howsey said, alcohol is definitely a problem. Any other sedative medications like benzodiazepines, uh, there are patients out there in the community that have prescriptions for Ativan, otherwise known as lorazepam, Xanax for anxiety, and then there's muscle relaxers that people get sometimes from emergency departments, primary care doctors, and so all of those can also contribute to the sedating effects and decrease respiratory drive that we see with opiates.
0: Very good. So let, let me we touched a little bit on on naloxone and we talked about the chronic use of opiates and these these are this usually means prescribed but there is also a large amount of use of illegal opiates out in the in the community. Can, can you tell us a little bit about the the problem that we're facing right now? What what's the What's the problem with opiates and acute overdose out in the community? How big is the problem? What should we be looking out for?
1: This is actually a very big problem in the community, Eduardo. This is an epidemic, and it's definitely an epidemic in Ohio as well. In Ohio, our death rate is double what the national average is for a standardized population. And we're seeing it um, with the use of heroin, but then the heroin is also being mixed with more potent items like fentanyl, carfentanyl, and other analogs. And so, if you are used to using a particular dose of heroin, and then you get a different supplier or a new supply, and it's coming with fentanyl or, or carfentanyl, because that's so much more potent, then you're going to have a sudden decrease in your mentation and probably your breathing.
0: So let, let me ask you a little bit, because I, I, we hear this all the time. Oh, it's more potent. How much more potent are the things that uh, besides fentanyl? Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Sure. Fentanyl is reported to be 50 times more potent than heroin. And carfentanyl, which is a large animal tranquilizer, is 5,000 times more potent.
0: So uh, m- much smaller doses will achieve toxicity much faster. Absolutely. That's, wow. So... Philip, you have done a lot of, of work on the area of respiratory toxicity, but there's a concern here: is they, they are mixing not only with carfentanyl and fentanyl, but other substances. Can you tell us a little bit about these other substances that they are cutting heroin with, and what are the effects that that tell, and what should the, the people expect?
2: Why is this dangerous? So one big problem, which is now in the news. And people can follow online, they use a drug called xalazine with an X. Mm-hmm. And this drug is actually used commonly in vet- veterinary medicine to anesthetize large mammals, including you know, cows. It's very easy to get. And the incidence, I was looking recently at numbers, you know, over the last 10 years has increased dramatically. For example, people who were who have been overdosed in the street with fentanyl. We would find 2% of them in 2000. We would find the presence of Zalazine in 2% of them. In 2019, it's already 30%. And I know that the recent data showed more than half of the patients or the victims of opioid overdose in the street actually have Zalazine, a pretty high dose in their blood. So in certain states, Maryland, Connecticut, Pennsylvania, and I suspect Ohio as well, this has become a major issue. Up to 30% of victims of opioid overdose are also at the same time victims of xalazine overdose. So I want to bring the attention to the family of users of opioids as well as users themselves. It's not a small thing to add xalazine to this product. Sometimes they are not aware of it. It's used by drug dealers to cut the fentanyl because it's a relatively cheap product. But the effect can be, can be dramatic and dreadful.
0: Explain to me, I mean, in simple terms, it, it, what, does it make it more
2: powerful? Does it make the, the effects different? Why, why Why does it kill so people? So, for it, Xalazine, is the same family of medication that we use in humans to produce sedation or anesthesia. Mm-hmm. So, it's more or less a potent anesthetic agent. But it has also, without getting into much detail, a specific interaction with uh, all opioids in the way that this opioid depresses breathing. So the combination of these two elements, not only through the sedation but also through this very specific and unique mechanism of action, again, can be dreadful. And if you combine modest dose of xalazine with modest dose of opioid, you can obtain a little cocktail, whether individually this, uh, this drug would not be little.
0: Wow, this is very concerning, evidently, because now you have something that depresses the the respiratory system relatively, very fast. So just in general terms, just for our audience, how long can we be without breathing? I mean, after one of these overdoses, the breathing centers stop, right? So how long do we have to act on this?
1: You're probably talking on the order of minutes. And that's in a healthy person. So someone who, say a young person overdoses, it's on the order of minutes that they're going to become hypoxic. Now, if you have someone who's obese, we know that that patient's going to get hypoxic much more quickly than someone who's not obese. And then if you have underlying lung disease, it probably is going to happen even quicker. So...
0: I mean, this is a, a moment in which, if you suspect it or you know that somebody's using opiates in your family and they develop uh, unconsciousness or they're not breathing, it's not. Let's wait until they wake up. It's if you have naloxone, give naloxone and call nine one one immediately. Is that correct? Yeah.
1: I agree with you a hundred percent.
0: Yeah, it's 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 very concerning, and, and we. I would just say from the. ICU standpoint, we have seen several patients that come in very young, at young age, that with all their organs working, that have just suffered severe lack of oxygen to the brain because of lack of breathing. The team responded and arrived to them, but they were unable to to the, the brain didn't get enough oxygen, so they, they are left with damage forever in, in the brain or death.
1: Yes, correct. I think you highlight a really important point here in how sensitive uh, brain tissue is to oxygen. And without it, it, it doesn't take very long for the damage to be done, and it's unfortunately irreversible. Mm-hmm.
2: Yes, just to add a very simple point, the sequence of events is always the same and goes very quickly. Breathing stops, oxygen drops in the blood. Within a minute, the heart can stop, it can fibrillate or stop contracting properly. Then the brain will suffer right away. So the urgency is to restore breathing and try to get the oxygenation of the blood to a level compatible with survival. So that's why naloxone should be, in, in, any, in any case, injected as soon as possible, even if there is a risk of with, acute withdrawal uh, on, on site because the risk of having terrible sequelae or even uh, dying is very high in this situation. How, how does naloxone work? So n- naloxone, it's a beautiful drug because what it does, is not very toxic. It's actually not toxic at all when it's used in, a, in somebody who is not on, on, any, on any opioid. It will deplace, take the place of the opioid on the receptors we were talking about earlier. And by doing so, it prevents the the opioid to act, restoring the normal function of the cells for a relatively short period of time. We have to remember that naloxone doesn't work for hours and hours. So after a while, the fentanyl, which is still, or the opioid still circulating in the blood, will return on the cells, and you can have a secondary problem, Mm -hmm. which must be, that's why this patient must be followed in a medical setting as soon as the naloxone works. In other words, if someone has, an opioid overdose, you inject the naloxone, he feels fine or even super excited, he should go to the hospital, call still 911. They need to be followed, they need to be uh, observed for uh, several hours at least, making sure that there is no need to re administer the naloxone. But it just deplaces the molecule of uh, fentanyl or opioid from the receptors, taking this place and having no uh, action.
0: Yeah, it, it works practically like like magic, right? It comes and pushes out the the opiate from the, from its place, but long thereafter, the, the rest of the opiate says, well, you're not pushing me, and they go back into go the back. receptor yeah, and, and yeah. send
2: the patient to, to to sleep again. It's a unique type of antidote because it works beautifully. Yeah.
0: Wonderful. So, I mean, then we, we have talked about the opiates, but there's there's a number of patients that need the, this medication, right? There's a group of patients that have pain. And so, so let me... uh, Ask a general question and then focus on those that do need it. In general, in terms of pain control, are there other options besides the opiates?
1: Yes, there are definitely other options out there. And we know that not all pain needs an opiate. Things that are over-the-counter, like acetaminophen or Tylenol, brand name used most often, ibuprofen, naproxen, those are all options for pain control, physical therapy, acupuncture, there's a lot of different alternative therapies that can be tried before having to move towards an opiate and then when we do prescribe opiates the hope is that it's for a very short term and at the lowest dose possible
0: yeah so so what type of patients i mean there there's there's a group of patients that definitely need it right uh, can you tell me a little bit about that group of patients and obviously one of the the fears is that now you're, you you have these group of patients and they may be saying well I'm taking this and I have I, I'm at risk for respiratory depression. Can you tell me a little bit how do we balance this? How, how how do we go about with this? What group of patients are we talking about? And how do you balance that risk of depression and that risk of and the benefits of the opiates?
1: There's probably a couple of categories of patients that, that still are gonna benefit from an opiate. We know that pain associated with cancer can be very debilitating, and so those patients probably still would benefit in certain circumstances, but not every cancer patient needs an opiate as well. And again, using the other therapies in conjunction with it can also help minimize the dose that is prescribed. And then patients who are at the end of life, I think in the community we oftentimes think of them in hospice care. The end of life can occur in the hospital or in a hospice facility or at home, but opiates in those circumstances are definitely needed to control their pain and anxiety and, and give them peace at the end of their life.
0: Very good. So there there's benefits with anything. I, actually, I would say that any medication that we, we talk about has its good side and its, its bad side, and we have to balance it. The, the challenge here is that, we, that there has been a large use, and this illegal use has created a, a real problem also in the, in the communities and our young people. Philip, what advice would you give to someone prescribe opiates to prevent any potential breathing problems? What, what, what would be, what's your usual advice for, for them?
2: Yeah, I think now, the, in contrast to what was done at least a decade ago, the medical community is very aware of the risk of prescribing long-term opioids. So most patients who are now, except for those described by Deborah earlier, who are on an opioid are usually prescribed for a very short period of time, usually a small number of pills for a short period of time. Mm-hmm. And I think there is a pressure sometimes from patients to get more and more. But I think the patient must understand that by doing so, they will create an addiction and, in, and eventually will continue to take opioid not because they feel in pain, but because they feel the need for it. So the recommendation is to try to understand why your doctor is doing that. It's not to punish. You, but to help you so that's the first thing is the pressure f- to get more opioid is certainly present but one has to understand that this is these are dangerous drugs when you don't really need them mm-hmm. the second element is to avoid as we mentioned earlier you know combining opioid with alcohol and uh, other other drugs that reduce uh, vigilance that are prescribed for uh, like sleeping pills or against depression uh, it's also very important when you are prescribed opioid to keep them in a safe place There there have been accidents of, um, of course, uh, involving children who would uh, swallow these pills. And whether the children are not more sensitive to it, they are, of course, more sensitive to the dose. And the dose are prescribed for adults, not for young children. So this is something that may not affect the patient itself, but members of the family. we have to be careful that these drugs are controlled drugs, meaning that we have to watch them. That's why they are controlled drugs. They cannot be used by another member of the family. They cannot be used by, obviously, by children. And certainly, we have to protect children from having access to them.
0: Yeah, very, very important point. So it's it's often that people that you get prescribed opiates and the pain is gone, and you're left with a number of pills, right? What should they do with those pills?
1: There's a lot of different ways out there to dispose of them. Most pharmacies you're able to take medications back to. So if you're not using the rest of that prescription, it's not one that you should hang on to in case you might need it at a future date. You really should take that back to the pharmacy and have them appropriately dispose of it. I think local EMS and fire departments may also have opportunities to help recycle those appropriately and, and get them out of the community.
0: Yeah. Yeah the, those cabinets can be be a, a real challenge when there's all these pills that are, are staying and, and through time just accumulate and then you don't know which one you have and wh- which one was just recently prescribed which one is the new one so thank you thank you for voicing that so how can we as a community spread awareness about the dangers of opiates and their effects on our respiratory system to keep our friends and family safe what what would be your your message to the community that,
1: I think the first thing with any problem is if you don't talk about it, then it just grows and festers. So, ignoring it, pushing it aside, sweeping it under the rug, saying it's not a problem where I'm at, that's a problem for somebody else, I think is a mistake because we probably all encounter people, and maybe we just don't know it, that they're having a problem with it, whether they're on the spectrum of they're dependent on it or they are truly an addict. There are some things out in the community for those that are substance use abusers. There are naloxone kits that are free and available. In Ohio, the Ohio Department of Health helps coordinate this um, through a DON project. DON stands for Deaths Avoided with Naloxone. And the program started after a young woman overdosed. Her name is Leslie Dawn Cooper. And so, like I said, this is coordinated through the Ohio Department of Health, includes emergency services, has syringe programs, test strips. And as we were talking about earlier, there's fentanyl and other opioids that are contaminating heroin and cocaine as well. And so there are test strips if you want to test your supply to see if there is some fentanyl in there because of the potency associated with that and the increased risk of death that goes along with those drugs.
0: Thank, thank you very much for highlighting these initiatives and indeed talking about it is, is key. as starting to make more noise and more pressure to how do we control this, this epidemic. Philip?
2: No, I think, uh, again, compared to, compared to maybe 15 years ago, the, not only the medical community, but the political establishment not only is well aware of the magnitude of the problem, but is well aware a solution must be found. And you find that in, in every aspect of the society, whether for us, you know, the NIH is funding more projects related to research, finding better antidotes, finding uh, how, ways to overcome addiction and so on and so on. The White House has recently released a document mentioning the role of xalazine now in this epidemic. So the CDC is very really well aware. And I think progress on, on TV been recently released on the danger of using opioid and uh, uh, what happened historically with the medical prescription of opioids. So, so I think the, it's becoming more and more difficult now not to be aware of the toxicity. Still, it doesn't resolve the problem of acute overdose in the street. Despite this change, the change of the way we look at it, I think the medical community has made a, a completely, has modified its attitude in the treatment of pain in the U.S. dramatically for good. Yet, the number of opioid overdose in the street continue to increase. So obviously, the complexity of the problem, the intrication with social, economical, and other aspects cannot be easily resolved. But I think programs like uh, Deb was mentioning to make available naloxone to avoid death can certainly help. But we are still missing a complete understanding of why this, continue, the increase, this epidemic continue to increase. And uh, what would be the tools? to limit and, of course, to reduce this trend.
0: This is fascinating because I see hope in the the words of there is now community awareness, there is political awareness, there is a change that has occurred in prescription patterns and the way that we approach pain as as clinicians. Yet we have a major issue in the the community with these acute overdoses. We have pro- programs that are attacking this and, and trying to make available the, the response and the antidote as fast as we can. And we just simply having this podcast are making more people aware of what's happening out there. So I want to thank both of you, Dev and Philippe. This has been a fantastic podcast to listen about this and learn from you both. Today we heard from Deborah Rates and Dr. Philip Housie. Dr. Rates is a critical care and emergency medicine specialist. She serves as the director of the intensive care unit at the Cleveland Clinic Hillcrest Hospital. Dr. Philip Housie is a pulmonary and critical care specialist who serves as the director of the pulmonary function laboratory for the Department of Pulmonary and Critical Care here at the Cleveland Clinic. I'm your guest host Eduardo Mireles Cabo de Villa and I want to thank all of you for listening today, and for my two great guests. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Respiratory Inspirations podcast. For more stories and information from the Cleveland Clinic Respiratory Institute, you can follow me on Twitter at MD.